Scientists are discovering incredible interactions between plants' roots and soil-dwelling fungi called mycorrhizal fungi. These relationships are integral to how plants function, including, of course, our crops. But despite their importance to fundamental aspects of plant development, there's still so much we have yet to learn. We know, for example, that the fungi, when it colonizes the root system, it can actually change the gene regulation of the plant such that the plant is no longer able to access nutrients directly from its root system. It kind of creates an addiction onto the fungi that uh, makes it so the plant is giving more carbon to get at the nutrients. That's Dr. Toby Kears, an evolutionary biologist who studies these mycorrhizal fungi. She shares why this work is so important for biodiversity, for crop development, for soil health, and for carbon sequestration. We did some research that found that about 13 billion tons of CO2 are allocated every year from plants to mycorrhizal networks across the earth. So that, that includes all kinds of mycorrhizal fungi also associated with forests. But that's a huge number, right? That's equivalent to one third of the emissions from fossil fuels. The functions and strategies that these fungi perform in nature will blow your mind. And I can't help but wonder about the possibilities for the future of agriculture. Hello and Happy New Year to all of you ag nerds out there. My name is Tim Hamrich and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, investors and people shaping the future of the ag industry. Uh, we're celebrating a new year this week and a brand new quarterly presenting sponsor on the podcast. I'm very pleased that this quarter, the future of agriculture is brought to you by Swap Maps. When you know more, you grow more. Swap Maps variable rate technology helps you understand the why of field variability and how to better manage it. Understanding soils is the core of a successful fertility program, and Swap Maps allows you to map, measure, and better manage your soils using data that accurately delineates areas with similar fertilizer response characteristics. Turn your data into actionable value using Swap Maps. They're your trusted variable rate provider on millions of acres with a 98% retention rate. You don't hear about that in ag tech very often. Swap Maps, they do variable rate right visit swapmaps.com that's just swapmaps.com to book a consultation or to learn more and i personally have known Corey and been very familiar with the swap maps team for a long time now ever since he was a guest back on episode 211 of this show and i'm really proud to host their swat agronomy podcast so thank you very much to swap maps for supporting ag innovation and this quarter the future of agriculture podcast all right, now back to today's episode with Dr. Toby Kears. Professor Kears is an evolutionary biologist who earned her PhD from UC Davis. She's been a professor and university research chair of evolutionary biology in Amsterdam at a university that unfortunately I don't think I'll be able to pronounce the name of since 2014. I'll put it in the show notes. How about that? Kears is famous for uncovering ancient biological markets that take place beneath forest floors in which different trees and fungi barter for essential resources such as phosphorus and sugars. Kears co-founded the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, otherwise known as SPUN. There's so much fascinating stuff here about the soil biology that's happening beneath the surface that I think most of us have no concept of whatsoever, just these dynamic relationships. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I'm just going to drop you right into it. Here's my interview with Dr. Toby Kears.
originally, I'm from the United States. I was born in New York City, but I've been in Amsterdam in the Netherlands for the last 15 years or so. And that's where I have a lab that's focused on understanding the structure and flows of mycorrhizal networks. But honestly, I've been studying mycorrhizal fungi for decades now. I started when I was 19 years old, so a long time ago. And I started in the rainforest um, in Panama together with the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. That's where I really started to try to understand what was happening below our feet and try to understand if we could somehow make that invisible become visible to more people. Yeah, I love that. You know, making making that invisible become visible. And, and as you've been doing this work, what have you realized sort of turns the light bulb on for for people as you're talking to them about the importance of these networks? Well, these networks really comprise an ancient life support system. If we look back in evolutionary history, we know that fungal mycelium served as a plant root system for tens of millions of years until plants actually evolved their own roots. So fungi are the ancestral state of plants. That was the original root. That was you know, the, the way that plants were able to access nutrients. And that association between the first plants and fungi actually transformed the planet and the atmosphere. We know that the evolution of that innovation, that single symbiosis between plants and, and fungi coincided with about a 90% reduction in the level of CO2 in the atmosphere and this huge radiation of plant life on Earth. So now we thank the ecosystems that we have around us to that partnership between the original plants and fungi. Well, I, I know we could do a whole podcast series on this, and, and this might even be a, so such an obvious question. It's a dumb question, but it, but if it is, it, it probably won't be my last one today. When did we discover the the extent to which these mycorrhizal fungi exist beneath our feet? Well, this is always a hard question because our perception of mycorrhizal fungi has really changed over history. At first, when people started to look into the roots of plants, they thought that this was a pathogen that actually, because at least with the arbuscular type, as we call it, the type that penetrates into plant cells, it looks actually quite, quite negative for a plant cell because you've got the outline of a plant cell and then this enormous fungal structure inside. And people assumed that that was a pathogen that was actually able to penetrate and extract things from the plants. But now we realize that that's actually a, a beneficial symbiosis. And that structure that originally was thought to be pathogenic is actually the place where nutrient transfer happens. So to understand the symbiosis, you have to realize that plants, they take CO2 out of the atmosphere and they convert it into sugars and fats that they then feed through this structure to mycorrhizal fungi. And in return, the fungi are out foraging in the soil and collecting nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen. So they are really important for the uptake of essential plant nutrients, even phosphorus and nitrogen, but things like zinc as well. And we also know that these fungi, they can help increase plant resistance to pathogens. They can increase their resistance to abiotic stresses like drought and salinity. They even have effects on pollination. These fungi are associated with plants having bigger and sweeter flowers that attract more pollinators. You know, even until the 1960s, I think it was, uh, the kingdom of fungi was officially uh, recognized. So actually it's pretty new, our understanding of, of these fungal interactions and our appreciation of just how important they are. 
And do they exist in every root system? I mean, does every plant have some degree of, of fungal interaction or these arbuscular um, fungi? Yeah, we think about 80 to 90% of all plant species have a relationship with mycorrhizal fungi, but there are different classes of mycorrhizal fungi. So we've talked about the arbuscular ones, which form that structure inside a plant cell. And it's called an arbuscule because it actually, it looks like a mini tree that's inside a root cell. It's such a beautiful structure. The other two major classes are the ectomycorrhizae, which don't actually penetrate into the cell, but they form a sheath on the outside of the root. And those are associated more with conifer trees like uh, Douglas firs or pines, things like that. And then we have uh, aracoid, which are associated with like heath plants like blueberries and cranberries and things like that. Um, all different types of mycorrhizal fungi, but the vast majority of um, angiosperms on Earth, they, they associate with these mycorrhizal fungi. There are cases, a few cases, where we don't see uh, interactions with mycorrhizal fungi. For example, in the brassicas, so that's your broccolis and your cabbages and things like that. And they've actually lost the ability to interact with these fungi. And there's a lot of interesting hypotheses about why they no longer interact with these fungi. Very interesting. And I mean, and you already kind of mentioned some of the benefits, you know, the fungi go out and they they get the phosphorus or nitrogen or they can also help with, I think you mentioned pollination uh, and, and resistance to certain diseases. So all those are, you know, from an agricultural lens, we get excited about those things. Those are the things we want to have happen. How much do we know about our, you know, how variable those interactions are and how much management can either promote or depress them? Really good questions. And I think this is where a lot of research, a lot of ongoing important research is um, is happening right now. It really depends on the type of crops. You know, cereal crops um, are different than other types of crops. And it really depends on the soil environment itself. We know that the more nutrients that you add to the soil, the higher the level of the fertilization, the less mycorrhizal fungi you'll have, both in terms of abundance, so how much, how, how dense the network is, um, but also uh, how diverse the network is. So you can have things like tillage that can be quite negative as well, you know, management strategies like tillage that can really chop up the network and select for a, a kind of a weedy type of fungi that grows that might not give as many benefits. And you can have fertilization causing a negative effect. And of course, fungicide, uh, by definition, is not ideal for mycorrhizal fungi. And so uh, those are the most sort of basic management strategies that we know can have uh, big effects. But there's a lot of complicated science out there about just how much we can use these mycorrhizal fungi to scavenge for nutrients, for example. Right. And speaking of complicated science, it sounds complicated just to assess the presence and the species of fungi that exist, uh, you know, in, in a certain soil. What is the, the standard practice for assessing that? If we're talking about who is there, there's lots of techniques for trying to figure out who is there and what they're doing, right? They're both very, very important and different things. So with SPUN, with this organization, which is a an NGO that's focused on mapping the biodiversity patterns of these mycorrhizal fungi across the entire earth. So across all terrestrial ecosystems. So this is a very audacious goal that we've set for ourselves, but we really are interested in trying to understand broad biodiversity patterns, both in pristine habitats, uh, but also in managed ecosystems like in forestry and in agriculture. 
And so in these cases, what we do is we work with local collaborators and we'll actually go to a soil system, whether it's an ag system or not, and make a grid pattern, which allows us to get higher coverage of the different species that may be present in the soil. We then take those samples and extract the fungal DNA, which is like the fingerprint of the mycorrhizal community. Um, we then do sequencing, which allows us to look at the DNA and figure out who is there. And then we start to make these maps of predicted biodiversity patterns um, using machine learning algorithms that also bring in all kinds of environmental covariates like temperature and nutrients and elevation so that that can help us make more accurate predictions about who should be where. Interesting. And, and when we talk about who, we're, ta we're talking about, the, you know, the species. Um, how well identified are, are these species in, in terms of, I hate to always bring this back to what can they do for me, but it sounds kind of selfish when I put it that way. But, uh, you know, their function in the soil and, and how they might, uh, you know, help an agricultural system. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we talk, we usually talk about fungi as, you know, this vast kingdom. Um, there was an estimate, I think Q um, here in the UK just put out a beautiful report about the undescribed species of fungi in the world. And they estimate that there's about 2 million species that still have yet to be described. And so only about 10% they estimate a fungal species um, have been discovered. So really, this is one of the last frontiers of biological discoveries is, is fungi. So it's always really hard for scientists to ask to put a number on this. The arbuscular mycorrhizae fungi, the ones that are associated more with crop species, it gets even more complicated because it's really hard to define what is an individual, <laughs> an individual species in this kind of fungi because closely related strains can actually fuse together and exchange nuclei, which is, you know, where the DNA is carried. And so it's, it's a much more difficult question than you can imagine. Yeah. And has there been much work done, you know, with kind of regenerative agriculture trying to, uh, let's say we can reduce tillage, we can eliminate fungicides, uh, how much different the, the fungal ecology looks like in that soil versus maybe a more conventional soil? Yeah, there is some really interesting work. I think some of the most exciting work from our perspective is, is on nutrient cycling and just the role of these fungal networks in reducing leaching of nutrients. They really are a scaffold. They're a very important sticky scaffolding that holds soils together. And so if you have a really healthy and diverse community, it can create this, this network. It's a really dense scaffold. In some cases, about 30% of the living biomass of soils is mycorrhizal fungi. So at least in really healthy, pristine grassland ecosystems. And what that does is it creates this beautiful net that actually keeps the nutrients up in the upper layers than getting in to the waterways. Um, and so that's really exciting research because what it means is that we can potentially decrease our dependence on inputs in terms of fertilizer if we have this really healthy network. And I imagine the research is, is getting to what management practices or lack thereof need to happen in order to get to that point. Are, are we close to kind of having a sense of that? Management is hard. Yeah. I mean, I think what where people's minds mostly go is towards inoculants, of course, is that, you know, this idea of adding mycorrhizal fungi when needed to uh, help bring back soils. And, you know, this is where as somebody who studies biodiversity, I have a little bit of a pause, right, because we really don't want to repeat the mistakes of the green revolution where monocultures were planted in very low diversity uh, ways. You know, if we're adding 
um, a particular, let's say, one, one species of mycorrhizal fungi to millions of acres of land, I get nervous. That's, that's what makes me nervous because we're really interested in these fungi as an important biological reserve for, for so much innovation. Another problem with inoculants is that, you know, in some cases they just don't work. I think there were some, some beautiful studies that looked at biomass, you know, increases in plant biomass and only found in one of every 25 inoculants that was tested that there was some kind of biomass increase. And so I think that's where we are right now is that people are starting to recognize the importance of actually working, collaborating with mycorrhizal fungi in terms of, of helping in, in nutrient cycling, but that we don't have the right tools yet. And I guess that's also where SPUN comes in is and, and management practices is just to try to get people to focus their attention on research that's coming out of labs all over the world that really is trying to pinpoint exactly what we can do to increase the, the biodiversity of these um, below ground systems. Yeah. And uh, I know how this question sounds. It sounds very, very basic and, and obvious, but sometimes my more simple questions can yield my more profound answers, um, which is, could you just talk about the importance of biodiversity? And for somebody who might be skeptical, who's uh, a farmer and, hey, I'm trying to, to kind of bend nature to my will in a way, um, I, I don't know where biodiversity fits in my sort of, uh, you know, uh, financials of, of running a farm here. So could, could you maybe just talk about the importance of biodiversity? Yeah, of course. And it depends, you know, how we're talking about biodiversity. And this is this is obviously something very hard for land managers to to think about is, you know, how can you be protecting and even enhancing biodiversity while still um, being able to generate an income? And, you know, there's there's a lot going on in terms of the biodiversity of soils and Research is showing more and more that the more simple communities that you have in the soil, the, the less protected they are against things like pathogens, against a nutrient loss. And what people are starting to realize is that biodiversity can actually help scaffold up. It can bring lots of different services that are not captured in very simplified habitats. So even let's think about something like forestry. We know that like forests that have multiple tree species can be more effective carbon sinks than monocultures. The question is whether something like that can be translated to mycorrhizal fungi, where you've got diverse communities of mycorrhizal fungi and how, how that can actually help something like soil organic carbon stocks. Um, we know that these fungi are really important for carbon drawdown, for example. We did some research that found that about 13 billion tons of CO2 are allocated every year from plants to mycorrhizal networks across the earth. So that, that includes all kinds of mycorrhizal fungi also associated with forests. But that's a huge number, right? That's equivalent to one third of the emissions from fossil fuels. So we know that these fungi, they contain a lot of carbon. They contain lipids, um, even the spores themselves, about 95% of the dry weight of a spore is carbon, is the lipid materials. And we know how important carbon is now um, for farming systems. So that's just one example of like how biodiversity can increase something like carbon stocks below ground. 
Wow. And I, I know these networks can be very, very old, but uh, are they composed of organisms that are, are you know, dying over time? Or is it, is it the organism itself that is, is kind of persisting for years on end? No, it's a really great question, right? It's it's and it's a hard question. I mean, we have a word for it when when you have a fungal network um, that's no longer active. It's called necromass, which is a great word you should try to use <laughs> sometime in your daily life today. Necromass is is the uh, scaffolding of the fungal network after it's no longer active, and that's actually an incredibly important carbon store too. Not only just because the biomass itself is made up of carbon, but it can create a structure that helps keep the soil together. And so you can think about these networks as changing carbon dynamics in three real important ways. The first is when they're alive, they actually act as pipe systems for carbon, especially the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. This is what we do in the lab is we study living fungal networks and we can actually image the carbon moving through them in real time. So we, all day long, we're watching videos of carbon being moved by these arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And it is incredible the kinds of strategies that they use to move this carbon and how fast it is. And so if we're talking about carbon dynamics, these guys are a real key entry point into soils. And we can now start quantifying exactly how, when, where they're moving the carbon. The second way that they move carbon is that they make these compounds that are very sticky and are hard to degrade. And so, uh, you know, if it's something like sugar, obviously in a soil, it's easily respired and lost to the environment. But these compounds are so complex that they actually help keep the carbon below ground. And the third way is, as you said, when they're dead, right? Does that matter too? And that necromass um, is very important, um, not only for its physical contribution to soils, but also because it just represents a carbon reservoir. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to one of the parts of your of your TED talk that blew my mind, which is these these fungal networks can kind of appear to decide where and when to allocate certain resources, whether that be carbon or phosphorus or nitrogen. It, it doesn't seem like it follows a specific pattern. It's like they're deciding. They're like you said, their strategy. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Is that right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's hard to use the word decide. Uh, what we use is evolutionary strategy um, to describe behavior, actually, of microbes. So like animals, microbes perform uh, behaviors, and that makes sense. You don't need a central nervous system like a brain to have any kind of behavior. It means you'd move towards the light, right? Plants grow towards the light. That's a particular kind of behavior. Um, they have roots that forage towards nutrients. That's a kind of behavior. And so microbes show those kinds of behaviors as well. And so What's interesting about um, studying fungal strategies is that they are very dynamic. You have a plant root system that is colonized by an arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. That network, that single individual can also be connected to another crop plant, let's say, um, as its neighbor right nearby. And it could be getting resources simultaneously from two different partners. And what we do in the lab is we try to understand what cues, sort of what information that the fungus uses 
to allocate more resources to one network rather than the other. So what makes it move these phosphorus resources towards one plant rather than the other? So we set up all kinds of experiments where we manipulate at a very small scale, right? We're talking about experiments that can happen in in Petri plates where we track basically the decision-making of fungi by being able to track where they move nutrients. So we use all of these very cool tools. One of the uh, most exciting tools we recently developed is called Quantum Dots, which is where you can take uh, basically nanoparticles and attach them to nutrients and they fluoresce in bright, pure colors when you shine a UV light on them. So we're doing imaging of a fungal network that we usually keep in the dark, but obviously when we image it, we take it out in the light and we shine UV and we can see where the nutrients have moved. And so using these techniques, we actually set up these experiments and try to understand, okay, well, if, a, if one root system is giving a certain amount of carbon, how much phosphorus is the fungi going to move to that root system versus another root system that may be giving less carbon? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. I mean, and I, I know I'm anthropomorphizing here, but but while we're on the topic, I also understood that their behavior can change based on the sort of exchange rate. So so I think you mentioned like they could sort of hijack a plant or they can hoard nutrients to to hike up what they're going to get in return for them. Is that uh, am I understanding that correctly? No, that's that's exactly what we find. So, for example, different fungal strains show different strategies. There's one of our strains that we study that that is a hoarder, as you say, that actually will take up the nutrients, the phosphorus and nitrogen into its network and just retain them in a form that the plant has no access to. Now, this is really cool because what you can imagine then is it drives up the price of that phosphorus over time. And so what we find is then the plant has to give more carbon to get at those nutrients from the fungal network because it's no longer available in the soil system itself. It's in the fungi. And so honestly, this is what gets me up in the morning is just like, what are we going to discover next about how these fungi are using such clever strategies? As you, you use the word hijack, uh, we know, for example, that the fungi, when it colonizes the root system, it can actually change the gene regulation of the plant such that the, um, the plant is no longer able to access nutrients directly from its root system. It kind of creates an addiction onto the fungi that um, makes it so the plant is giving more carbon to get at the nutrients. It creates this addiction, which is which is fascinating. We've seen other experiments we set up where we would put nutrients on one side of the fungal network and we thought, okay, well, it's just going to then trade it with the closest plant root system. But instead, it actually actively picked up those nutrients, transferred it across the root system to the side to this plant where demand was higher for, for nutrients, where the plant needed more nutrients, and then it was able to get more carbon in exchange. So again, it's just this idea of, you know, the fungi, they've been under natural selection for hundreds of millions of years to get carbon from plants in exchange for nutrients. And so obviously, they have evolved very clever innovations for being able to maximize the amount of carbon that they get. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, to me, this just seems like such a fundamental aspect of how plants survive, thrive, grow, produce all the above that we are still like kind of scratching the surface of understanding, even though, you know, plants are fundamental to our own survival. We're just barely starting to understand this very, very fundamental aspect of them. 
Yes, you, you said it very well. I think we've moved beyond science that is about categorizing piles, right? I would say that in the past, what we tried to do was we tried to explain the world based on, okay, this is a plant, this is an animal, and they're in different piles. Um, but what's exciting about the science right now is that it's more about interactions. It's all about how organisms interact to involve, evolve, in these cases, these very complex trade dynamics, which really are key in moving resources across ecosystems. It's like there's this exciting acknowledgement that even the smallest organisms live in really complex social worlds and that organisms are really made up of scaffolds of other organisms and that these really small micron level interactions are, are shaping the world. And you mentioned earlier, you know, your goal is to create this biodiversity map. Can you help us visualize what that looks like and, and why that's an important next step in our understanding of these interactions? Yeah, of course. So to me, fungi, they, they underlie life on earth. And so that's why it's I struggle to this day to understand how we still don't appreciate and and fully know, fully be able to categorize and understand their biodiversity patterns. If we really want to collaborate with fungi in agricultural systems, we have to understand, for example, which fungi have existed for millions of years in grassland systems. That's a very fundamental piece of knowledge that I think will be really helpful in sustainable agriculture. And yet, we really don't understand a lot about grassland fungi. I think a lot of people assume, what, you know, when they talk about fungi, they think about mushrooms and forests rather than these very diverse, thick networks that are in what we called old growth grasslands. Um, so we had a recent expedition in Chile where we were really in some of the, we couldn't even get the soil core into the ground because the root mat, there was so much soil organic carbon that it was almost impossible to hammer a core into the ground, right? And that's what we call an old growth grasslands, you know? It's, it's totally different than an agricultural system. And so what we wanna do is actually be able to generate these biodiversity sets that tell us what has shifted in agricultural versus pristine land. And can we use that biological reservoir in these natural habitats to create, to actually rewild um, soils uh, for regenerative agriculture? And so when we talk about these biodiversity maps, we are talking about pixels of earth, right? I think it's about, I don't wanna get this wrong, um, maybe 132 million one kilometer square pixels across terrestrial Earth, where we want to understand these biodiversity patterns. And so when we look at maps, what we can do right now is we can look at species richness. We can look at the levels of biodiversity across different habitats. And what we see is pretty shocking. I mean, we've got one beautiful uh, research experiment in Ecuador right now that's really looking at even at smallholder farms and how different those soils are compared to uh, soils in um, just on the edge in forests. Incredibly different mycorrhizal biodiversity. Is there something there? You know, can we learn from these um, wild habitats? Can we understand what fungi and the traits of those fungi and somehow use those in agricultural systems? So everywhere we go, we can make these maps of biodiversity, but then what we can do is really zoom in and understand the patterns of specific species. And does that include uh, fungi as well as, as bacteria in, in the soil? 
So for us, we're really focused on fungi because they've been so overlooked. Um, but there are, of course, huge initiatives that are interested in bacteria as well. Uh, for us, the, the fungal bacterial interaction itself is very interesting to study and something that more and more people are starting to realize is that actually there's a whole microbiome on the fungi themselves, right? We now, now people realize that humans have a microbiome and plant roots have a microbiome, but I don't think they understand that fungal networks themselves have a microbiome that are also colonized by very cool bacteria that, for instance, can help with solubilizing phosphorus. So really key sort of communities that live on the, um, the networks of these fungi that help them eat rock and break down complex forms of phosphorus, for example. It is uh, unbelievable. I mean, it's just so, so complex and it gets exciting once you, you, you know, kind of learn one more piece to the puzzle and you realize that the puzzle is actually a lot bigger than you thought it was. What you were saying earlier about carbon and the importance of mycorrhizal fungi in, in, in carbon, it got me thinking about carbon sequestration, which is obviously a hot topic in agriculture right now. And a lot of the models that are coming out don't seem to account for soil biology at all. It's, it's sort of like, are you planting a cover crop? Are you tilling? And it would seem to me that this would have a really big impact on the ability for soils to store carbon long term. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're um, interested in as well, is really understanding these networks as a key entry point of carbon into soil and understanding the residence time of carbon once it enters. I mean, obviously, carbon is a cycle, and so carbon goes into the soil and then is respired out and really trying to understand the factors that keeps it below ground. Even things like crops make a huge difference. We did a, um, some work looking at wild plants uh, versus highly bred crops. And what we found was that in the data sets uh, was that crops allocate about half of the amount of carbon to mycorrhizal fungi than wild plants do. So already, even just that key lever of it matters what crops you plant in terms of how much they're going to allocate to these fungi. Very, very interesting. Well, I, I really appreciate all this, Toby. I want, one other thing that blew my mind I wanted to just ask you about briefly is, and I think it was somebody else's research that was doing this, but um, monitoring acoustics to understand what's happening below the ground. Is that, is that a common practice to kind of understanding soil biology? It is. It's, it's an, a newly emerging field, I would say, of acoustic ecology, we call it. And we have done it a bit. It's, it's really exciting sort of frontier in terms of trying to understand biodiversity patterns based on acoustics. So again, using really high resolution microphones in soils to try to understand how they differ. And so you know, I think uh, some of the research that's emerging is that you can go to, for example, an ecosystem that has been recently logged and compare that to an intact forest. And what you hear, the sound profiles underground are incredibly different. And so now that people realize that you can, you know, really use this as a way to uh, get at, at profiles now try to understand, okay, what does that mean functionally, right? What does it mean when you just have different sound profiles coming from these different underground ecosystems? Um, in, in another expedition that we went on, we took a sound um, uh, engineer scientist who was putting microphones underground and we were just listening into the field. And it's incredible. We had the chance to sample under what is or may be the oldest tree on earth in southern Chile. It's, it's, a, it's a really tight competition between the ponderosa pine in the U.S. and this one um, tree in, in southern Chile. 
both, you know, anywhere from four to 5,000 years old, a single tree. Incredible, right? And it's sat, we've got to listen to what it sounds like underneath it. And it is, it's radically different compared to, let's say, a eucalyptus plantation. It just sounds different. And so scientists are now trying to extract those sound profiles and compare them and make sense of them. Um, and again, I think machine learning uh, is going to become really handy here um, in terms of trying to distinguish things like, well, okay, what does that mean? It's the one thing just to, to, to compare two sound profiles, but actually, you know, make a causal relationship to understand what's driving that patterns, I think is the next frontier. That is just crazy to me. Wow. Um, all right. Well, before I let you go here, just a quick question. You know, if somebody's listening and they're, they're a farmer or, or involved in, in agriculture, you know, on the ground and they want to start fostering more of a beneficial environment for mycorrhizal fungi, you know, we mentioned tillage, we mentioned fungicide, anything else that they should be doing or not doing to try to uh, promote those healthy interactions? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard, right? I'm an academic. I do these very, you know, controlled experiments in the lab. And it's always really hard to, to give management advice, right? Because that's, a, that's such a different field. There's so many different factors. And so, you know, the, the thing that I would say, sort of really big take-home message is just how detrimental it can be to have soils that are not covered, right? To me, when I see a soil that is bare, it's it's almost heartbreaking because it just means that not only are we going to have lots of erosion and soil loss, but those mycorrhizal networks have no plant partner. I mean, what you have to understand about arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi is, this is a big word, but they're called obligate biotrophs, which means they depend on plants for all of their carbon, all of their growth. So they cannot survive without plant hosts. So let's imagine you're a tiny little fungal spore in a soil and you germinate and you send out your little hyphae is what we call it. Your little, you know, it's almost just like a plant root, but we, we, it's a fungal hyphae. And you're looking for a host, some kind of plant. If there is no host there, they actually retract their little hyphae back into the spore and they keep waiting. <laughs> and waiting and waiting and they can only wait for so long and if they come out again they only are allowed to come out and in a few times before they've used up all their energy reserves and so it's heartbreaking to see soils that are not covered that have no sort of plant partner um, because that's really what's going to lead to the loss of the biodiversity and the abundance of these mycorrhizal networks um, and so there are they're very helpful for plants in so many different ways, man. We didn't even cover all the ways that these fungi um, can help plants benefit. They increase the root system from anywhere from 10 to 100 fold. They make it that much bigger. Um, and so the plants themselves have much more access to water and nutrients. And so just making sure that the soils are covered with some sort of cover crop or some kind of plant system uh, really helps support these mycorrhizal fungi. Toby, thank you so very much for this. This has been awesome. It was such a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much. Well, I really enjoyed learning so much from Dr. Toby Kears. Thank you, Toby, for being on the show. I highly recommend you go check out her TED Talk, uh, which I will link to in the show notes for this episode. And I am proud of myself. I made it this far without making a fungus among us joke. But of course, there it is right there. So thanks again to Swap Maps for being our quarterly presenting sponsor. Don't forget to turn your data into actionable value with Swap Maps. Learn more at swapmaps.com. And last but certainly not least, thank you. For your time and your attention. I do not take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Mm -hmm.